the story so far. Dolan, who is aged somewhere between 9 and 13, and the gypsies, Jimbird Flyflower, a strange and knowledgeable old man with a crutch and only one of everything, who is also a top scientist working for Nasty. Ivan the Terrible, the world's worst rock guitarist, and Billy the telephone freak Perkins have stolen a spaceship, which Jimbird designed, from Nasty, the National Association for Research and Scientific and Technological Investigation. By means of IMT, Instant Matter Transportation, another of Jimbird's inventions, they travel 17,000 million miles in a split second and land on Miranda, the innermost and smallest of the five moons of Uranus. Forgetting Jimbird's warning about the low gravity, the three children caper madly around the surface of Miranda, lose control, and all end up stuck tight, heads down, in a narrow crevasse, 30 feet below the moon's surface. Meanwhile, back at Nasty, the travels of their spaceship are being monitored and another rocket is about to set off in pursuit. Right, brothers. We're all strapped in, then. Ready for the off? Said Crispin Lobmincing, head of research and development at Nasty. Not off, cried Bratto the Wonderboy, winner of all fights. His freckled face abeam. Bratto had appointed himself cabin boy for the trip. I'll say agreed Flipper Pilkington, ex-army helicopter pilot and frequent crasher of the same. Sure, and speaking for myself, I'm about as ready as I'll ever be, said a third voice. Big up. This last came from a late addition to Lob Mincing's crew. He was a priest, an Irish priest, a defrocked Irish priest. It was merely a little misunderstanding over the whereabouts of a few bottles of altar wine. But his grace chose to take it seriously, he had said after introducing himself. Father Out had caught up with Lob Mincing, Bratto and Flipper as they were leaving the tea shop, just across the road from Nasty. You'll likely be after needing a bit of guidance for a mortal souls. You undertaking such a terrible long journey and all of that... And as past spiritual advisor to the crown teeth of Europe, I'm just a man for that. Lob Mincing, who was so scared of heights that his nose had been known to bleed when he stepped onto a thick piled carpet, was inclined to agree. But he consulted his crew members first. What I see, why not? said Bratto. For more, for merrier. Well, why not? Flipper said, adding, Doesn't seem a bad chap, eh? For a god-botherer, that is. Ah, bless you, lads. You'll not regret it. You'll not regret it. Very much, cried Father out. And under his breath, added, And thank you, Lord, for a roof over me head for tonight. Big ab. Lob Mincing, who had overheard this little prayer, said, Well, Father, I think it'll run out to more than just the one night. Come on, then. Let's get you lot kitted out. So here they all were, in the second of the only three rockets to be built by Nasty so far, listening to the countdown from the boss of Nasty, Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF, open brackets, retired, close brackets. 
who was personally supervising their takeoff. Lob Mincing didn't see much point in all this backwards counting, especially as A. He was the one who pressed the takeoff button, and B. Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF, open brackets, retired close brackets, had begun the countdown, somewhat arbitrarily, at 17. Lob Mincing's finger hovered over the button as the voice came droning over the transceiver. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, six, turret, four, three, two, one, go! And Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF, open brackets, retired, close brackets, parting bellow of... And don't show up here without that other go-darn rocket in tow, you hear? Was almost engulfed as the spaceship's engines roared into life and she began to lift from the launch pad. I hear you, Gov, and I obey, muttered Lob Mincing just before his face was pulled out of its familiar pudding shape by the force of gravity, and his tongue became about as useful for speech as a damp chip. After a short time, the tug of gravity diminished. Their faces regained their normal shape, and Lob Mincing cut the engines. Air, what are we stopped for? protested Bratto. We haven't stopped, chum. We've simply achieved escape velocity, left the Earth's main gravity field, and now we're coasting on the kinetic energy generated thereby. As you can tell, Crispin Lob Mincing was much more intelligent and far better educated than his undistinguished accent would suggest. I fail, chap, Flipper chimed in. What's all that jiggery-pokery mean in plain man's English? Crispin sighed. I'll spell it out for you. Jiggery-pokery indeed. Number one, escape velocity. That's the minimum speed we need to get clear of the surface of the planet or whatever. In the case of the Earth, about seven miles per second. Number two... Earth's main gravitational field, as what will pull us back down again if we don't achieve escape velocity. Number three, kinetic energy. To put it at its simplest, this means the huge push we need to get away from the Earth has left us with a bit of speed in hand, as it were. So we're getting farther away from home at a speed of something like 25,000 miles an hour. Ow! said Bratto. Ah, I see, said Flipper. Now I get it, said Father Out. Big Ab? He added. Yeah, continued Lob Mincing, flipping the telescreen control to reverse view. There's Earth, see? Now we're over 500 miles above it. Ah! And his tummy banged against his ribs in a shudder of sheer, vertiginous fright. Hurriedly, he turned his attention to setting the coordinates on the instant matter transportation machine, aligning them with the bright red dot, which was Jimbird's spaceship. You told us about IMT before we took off, said Bratto. 
Yeah, I meant to ask. Couldn't we have just used it direct from Earth and not bothered with velocity and getting squashed by gravity and all that kinetic thingy? Yes, mate. We could have done that, agreed Lob Mincing. But we'd have took the Earth with us. You see, everything that's actually touching the spaceship when I press the IMT button goes with it. And it would have been embarrassing, to say the least, to have turned up in the middle of Uranus and her five moons with Mother Earth in tow. And I don't reckon the citizens back there would have took too kindly to their removal either. Uranus being more than 283 light-years away from the sun, it's inclined to get a bit parky round them parts. He pressed the IMT button. Two men were now taking an intense interest in the progress of Lob Mincing's spacecraft. One was Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF, open brackets, retired, close brackets. He watched the IMT monitor screen and noted the green glowing points of the stars turn briefly to a pale green haze as the ship was transported, instantly, across the solar system. Its bright blue identification dot, coming to rest, next to the red one that was Jimbird's rocket. Hot damn, he muttered. They made it too. And he picked up a security screen telephone, dialed a long and complex number, and spoke quietly. Halo? Yeah, they made it. They both made it. Right, I'll do that. And he put down the phone. Jimbird Flyflower, worried about the whereabouts of his young crew members and puzzled as to why they had not used their suit radios to contact him, had clambered awkwardly into a spacesuit, let himself out through the airlock, handed himself down the ladder, had surveyed the empty, barren landscape and was about to call up Dolan on his suit radio when Lob Mincing's ship, retro rockets ablaze, descended gracefully nose upward, out of the purple sky, and made a perfect, gentle touchdown, 50 yards from his own vehicle. Jimbird chuckled and fiddled with his suit radio until he found Lob Mincing's wavelength. For a fellow as is terrified of jumping off the lowboard in the nasty swimming pool, that wasn't bad at all, Crispin, me boy. Never mind that lot. Where the heck are them? But Lob Mincing was cut short as the door to his spacecraft burst open and a figure in grubby clerical grey hurtled out, hotly pursued by two silver-clad space-suited individuals. Repent, and ye sins, my son, shrieked father out. And ye shall be saved. <laughs> and with a coughing, choking splutter, he sank to the ground, clutching his throat, his face turning an interesting shade of blue. The first of the pursuers to reach him carried an air bottle, and he now clapped the mask tight down onto Father Out's face and turned it on. Father Out turned from royal blue to imperial purple, 
to horrifying Vermilion. Without more ado, the two pursuers lugged father out to his feet, pushed the air bottle into his hands, and propelled him back into their spaceship, slamming the door behind them. Jim Bird, who'd observed this little vignette with alarm and fascination, was now helpless with laughter. It's all right for you, Flyflower, said Lob Mincing. I'm briefed in the proper manner about suiting up before going outside. But as soon as we landed, he started bawling about the Lord taking care of his children. And the next thing we know, he's away. Maybe now he'll remember that the Lord only helps them as helps themselves. In other words, if you're used to breathing oxygen, you'll never get behind the methane up here. Now, as I was saying, where the heck are them kids? Jim Bird Flyflower didn't answer. He was still hooting with laughter. Them kids, as we all know, were stuck upside down in a crevasse, deep below the surface of Miranda. In vain, Dolan, Ivan and Billy pushed and scrabbled at the glassy smooth walls which trapped them, in futile attempts to get out. They couldn't get to the control knobs and their suit radios because these were on their chest packs and in their current predicament, very much out of reach. Oh, what are we going to do? cried Billy. He was very frightened. Don't panic, mate, said Ivan. Jim Bird will find us, won't he, Dolan? Dolan wasn't so sure, but said, Yes, boys, I'm sure we will. Dolan's eyes rolled to the top of their sockets, seeking a means of escape, and found one. Or had they? It was a small, roundish, pebble-looking thing, sticking out of the rock wall, directly opposite the top of Dolan's head. No wonder they hadn't seen it. With a superhuman effort, Dolan manipulated an arm so that an elbow was bent and two fingers managed to obtain a grip on the tiny protuberance. With such a grip, it might just be possible to exert enough pressure to lever oneself backwards and upwards to freedom. Dolan gave a push. No good. Still wedged tight. Dolan tried again. Nothing. Dolan gave a mighty heave and moved. But no, Dolan hadn't moved. The pebble thing had. It had disappeared into the wall. Within three seconds, the children had disappeared into the wall as well as a huge trap door swung open, dropping them into a deep black hole, and then banged heavily shut behind them. Dolan, Ivan and Billy fell and slid helplessly down what seemed to be a huge smooth-walled tube which descended in a curve, rather like the kid's slide in a playing field, so that eventually they began to slow down. But before they came to a complete stop, 
they popped out of the end. All together. Into sunshine. And as they landed in some kind of huge safety net. Gravity. And further, when Dolan caught sight of the atmosphere gauge, on the inside of the goldfish bowl-looking helmet, the needle was pointing quite firmly at breathable. All three removed their helmets, carefully turned off their air supply, and looked around them as they bobbed gently in the safety net. For they were indeed in a safety net, about 400 feet above the floor of a gigantic cavern. And what a cavern! It stretched as far as Dolan's eyes could see. Sunlight streamed in from a huge crystal window in the roof and fell upon countless lush clumps of tropical greenery, decorated everywhere with blooms of hibiscus, bougainvillea and jacaranda. Huge multicoloured butterflies darted to and fro, vying for Dolan's attention with the multitudes of hummingbirds that hovered around the blossoms. Water tinkled and splashed from little waterfalls, which punctuated tiny streams, and from miniature fountains set in still green pools, afloat with flowering lily pads. Here and there, a fish disturbed the tranquil waters of a pool, sending widening rings across the surface. Along the walls of the cavern, at floor level, but extending upwards, were countless galleries brightly lit in a multitude of colours, and all leading off to somewhere out of sight. They looked very interesting indeed. Feeling the warmth in their cold spacesuits, Dolan, Ivan and Billy unzipped them and stepped out into the warm air. The curious twittering, squeaking noises, which Dolan had noticed, rising from the cavern floor, almost as soon as they'd landed in the net, became a little louder, and then subsided again. Looking carefully down, Dolan caught sight of brief, secretive movements amid the lush greenery. Dolan could not imagine what they were. You know, Dolan, said Billy happily, I think we found paradise. Dolan was not so sure. I'm not so sure, said Dolan. Take a look behind you. Billy turned and uttered a tiny squeak of fear, for marching purposely towards them, with an interested look in its eye, was the largest, greenest biped any of them had ever seen, or were likely to see. It looked a little like a frog that had been given the gift of walking upright, but the legs were shorter, and the body proportionately longer and pear-shaped. The arms were longer too. The hands had thumbs, and the fingers and toes were not webbed like a frog's, but separate, with rounded ends, like those of a toad. The lips of the huge mouth were parted in a grin of the utmost friendliness, and displayed a fine array of sparkling green teeth. And clenched therein was a vast cigar, about the size of a large telegraph pole. The creature was at least five hundred feet tall. It stopped in front of the terrified children, removed the cigar from its mouth, and spoke. Snagglegrit, umba put. Crikey, that's all we need, Anna, said Ivan. 
a giant cigar-smoking frog. He can't even speak English. <laughs> <laughs>